0: Welcome to Life-Changing Conversations with me, Neil Shah, the Chief De-Stressing Officer at the Stress Management Society and author of the 10-Step Stress Solution. I'm really, really excited for uh, for today's guest. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. It's the Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. He's the author of The Four-Pillar Plan and the TV Doctor from the BBC's Doctor in the House. He's very recently published a book called The Four Pillar Plan, which is already an Amazon number one bestseller and there are many things in that book that I'm really fascinated about getting stuck into in this conversation with Dr. Strategy today. So, Rongen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Tell us about your new book, what led you to write this book and what's it all about?
1: Well, Neil, first of all, thank you for having me on uh, the podcast. I've been a huge fan of yours for some time now since I think I first saw you on Sky News actually talking about stress a few years ago. Um, But my new book is basically about trying to simplify health for people. I think health has become incredibly complicated now for for so many of the population, for so many people. Uh, And the goal with my book is to try and simplify it. I've been a doctor now for 16 and a half years and during that time I've seen tens of thousands of patients and I've really come to the conclusion that about 80% of what I see in everyday general practice is in some way driven by our modern lifestyles. Now Neil, I'm not putting blame on people, right? It's very difficult now, you know, the way society is set up, but the way that we are collectively living our modern lifestyles for many of us, it's having a negative impact on the way that we feel. And so my goal with this book is to really give people a blueprint. How, how to, you know, what can they do in their everyday lives? The small, simple things, the achievable things that they can do that are gonna have a huge impact on the way that they feel. And, and this book works for absolutely everyone. If someone's already got a disease or a, or a complaint, the, the plan in this book will help them feel better. If people are trying to prevent getting ill in the future, this plan will help them prevent getting ill. And if people just simply want more out of everyday life, you know, a bit more energy, some more vitality, less brain fog, not needing to rely on coffee to get them through every single day, this book will help us because the basics are the same. And I think these basics for me are what I call the four pillars of health. Food and movement, which many of us are already talking about, Mm. but also sleep and relaxation. Yeah, absolutely,
0: and uh, relaxation stroke stress, obviously relaxation solution stress is a problem, is, is an area that I'm extremely passionate about. Just to pick up on some of those things that, that you mentioned about illness, and according to the World Health Organization, the top four reasons for premature death on the planet today are heart disease, type two diabetes, stroke, and cancer. I don't know if I've got those in the right order, but I know that they are all in the top four. In, from my perspective, in my opinion, those are all diseases of lifestyle. And in fact, there are many people inadvertently that are slowly committing suicide over a 30, 40, 50 year period by the way that they live their lives, by what they're consuming, by you know not getting enough sleep, by not moving effectively, by not taking the time to... Uh, to, to switch off from the pressures and demands of everyday life which are only increasing you know we live in a world where people are switched on from the moment they open their eyes and they don't switch off to the moment they fall asleep in fact some people are switched on even whilst they're sleeping and this is a real concern so you, you know in terms of the pillars that you're you're suggesting how does one go about implementing them and and bringing them into a life which is already jam-packed and the pressures and demands that, that we are getting from life result in most people find themselves swimming in a very fast moving river and often what we're asking them to do is to be able to rip themselves out of this river that's moving so fast and stand on the bank to find a better way of navigating it when they jump back in after they've read the book or after they decide decided what they're going to implement. Give us some ideas about how we go about implementing this against the pressures of everyday life.
1: Yeah Neil absolutely great point you bring up you know the, these conditions are affecting so many of us Actually, lifestyle is a big driver of all of them. Now, look, there are other factors, no question, but I think we undervalue how much the little things that we do day in, day out, have an impact on the way that we feel. You know, and it's it's obvious to some people around type two diabetes and obesity, you know, and heart disease. Yeah, you know, our, life, our lifestyles play a role in that. But this is much more, it's much more than just those conditions. A lot of migraines, can be treated by applying the principles in this book. Yeah. A lot of mental health problems can be uh, treated or certainly improved significantly by applying the principles in this book. Alzheimer's disease, which so many of us are scared of these days. we So many of us have been affected in some way, either ourselves or people close to us we have seen suffer with this debilitating and heart-wrenching condition. Mm. But what how, what causes Alzheimer's disease? Well, genetics really is only about 1% of the fats are there. Mm. Right? Only about 1% of it is actually due to a genetic abnormality that makes it very likely you're going to get it. The majority of it is called epigenetic, right? We're born with genes that might increase our predisposition, but it's our environment and our lifestyle that actually determines how those genes are expressed. And what a lot of people don't realise is that the pathophysiology, the changes in your body that cause Alzheimer's disease start 30 years before you get the diagnosis doesn't happen overnight, it's building up. Type 2 diabetes, it's building up in your body for 10 years at least before you get the diagnosis. So we're very reactive and this goes as to how we are as a medical profession. We wait until you've got these diagnoses before we get involved and really we need to start shifting things. Now you asked me how does this four pillar plan help people? Well, the reason I think it is resonating with so many people, the reason why it's striking a chord, is because I've made it quite accessible, right? Every single person who reads this book, you know, they start tweeting me or Facebook messaging me and saying, hey, as I was reading it, I wanted to make a change. You know, as I was reading it, I wanted to start changing things in my lifestyle. We have overcomplicated things where we think it's all about the perfect diet, or the perfect exercise regime, or having you know a whole Sunday each week where we meditate for the whole day, right? That just simply isn't achievable for people. So I've got these little bite-sized chunks that people can very easily put into their everyday lifestyle. You talk about stress, right? I, you know, I, I came up with a breathing technique to help with my patients a few years ago called the three-four-five breath. Now, just to be clear, there are many other breathing techniques out there that people, you know, far more illustrious than me, have come up with. I, as a doctor, am always looking for simple things that will get my patients to feel, you know, I want to inspire my patients. So they walk out of the consultation room thinking, hey, you know what? I can do that. It's not that hard. Mm-hmm. And, and the three, four, five breath came about where, you know, the research is if you breathe out for longer than you breathe in, you help to activate your parasympathetic nervous system, the relaxation part of your nervous system which is one that we very much underutilize these days. Many of us are stuck in fight or flight every day. I thought, well, how can I get patients to do it? Because a lot of people say, I don't have time for all that kind of stuff. So I had this patient, um, a 52-year-old chap, and he worked in a bank incredibly stressed. You know, he, he found his work stress all the pressure from his bosses. He had a lot of pressures going on at home, and he really would work himself up during the day. It was affecting his sleep at night and just a simple change. I said, well, look, you know, he drives to work. I said, you know, could you get a bit of downtime at lunchtime? Go to your car for five minutes, Mm -hmm. practice the three, four, five breath, which is simply breathe in for three, hold for four and breathe out for five. And he was skeptical, Mm -hmm. like many people are, but he started doing it. And bit by bit, he got addicted to doing it. He felt so good afterwards. It helped his sleep in the evening. It helped him... Concentrate and perform better at work just by doing about two minutes of the three, four, five breath in lunchtime. It just breaks that cycle. And, you know, you talk about movement, right? Movement is another key pillar for health, right? Strength training Mm -hmm. is critical because once we get above the age of 30, we lose muscle mass each year. Potentially up to 5% of our lean muscle mass is lost every 10 years above the age of 30. And that is one of the most strongest predictors of how well we will be as we age is our lean muscle mass. Now, if I say to my patients, you've got to get go to the gym, you've got to work out, you know, you, you need to focus on your strength. How many people are going to do that? Well, a few are, but many are going to think that's an obstacle. Mm-hmm. So I've got something called a five-minute kitchen workout that I've been using with my patients. I detail it in my book. I've got patients who are 80 years old doing it. I've got patients who are 20 years old doing it. They love it because there's no gym membership, right? There's no Travel. You don't need to buy any equipment. You don't even need to get changed. And it can be modified for all different ability and strength levels, right? And so my point is, is that, you know, good health is not as hard as we think it is. It's not about being perfect in any one of these four pillars. It's about balance across all four. And there are strategies in this book that will work for every single person. And the reason I know that is because... The feedback I've got from my patients over the last 16 and a half years has informed what I put in this book. This book ain't about what I think. It's about me talking to you about the latest science, but also then converting that into practical suggestions that I know work with people. And, and that's what I'm passionate about, Neil.
0: And So let me get this correct, going back to some of the things that you said earlier, um, that you very much believe that this is nurture, not nature. It's not the way we're born or the way we're designed, it's the way that we're living that is resulting in kind of the conditions that we're facing and the poor health that we're experiencing. Would you agree with that?
1: Absolutely, Neil. And I'd go a step further and say that the general consensus now over the last five to ten years of modern research is, is suggesting that 10%, only 10% of our health outcome is due to our genetics. Mm-hmm. 90%. Is down to our environment and our lifestyle. And I say in the book, I say, use this to change that 90%. You know, I can't change the genes that people have been born with. And before we sequence the human genome, right, we thought that was going to tell us everything. We thought that when we sequence a human genome, we'll know everything about disease. But actually we've realized that that's not the case. In fact, there are plants which have got more genes than we have as humans. Mm-hmm. And and the the field is called epigenetics and how our environment, how our lifestyle, I know you know this very well, Neil, but how that can switch on or off our genes. The food that we consume, you know, there's a big argument about fat v. carbs there on social media. Mm -hmm. And I understand why the argument is there, but I think it's a little bit short-sighted because food is much more than fat versus carbs. And actually good health is much more than food, but the food that we eat can impact our hormones. The food that we eat can switch on or switch off genes. And, and that's why I'm so passionate about it. It's not just a bit of soft medicine here. It's the medicine that we need in 2018 if we're gonna save the NHS. This is what we need to be start applying with every single one of our patients.
0: And I absolutely wholeheartedly agree with you. And in fact, my experience has been very much the same from literally the thousands of people that I've had the opportunity to work with across the planet over the last 15 odd years. Uh, it's very much you know, echoing everything that you've just said. And I think that this is one of the things that seriously concerns me is there are so much pseudoscience and myths out there uh, that people have accepted to be fact. Uh, you know, for many years, we were told that fat is bad for you. You know, now, you know, now that, that we've got full transparency, we totally understand that there was a research study funded in the 50s by the sugar industry that demonized fat for many years that we were holding on to that. Uh, the, and it's actually the, the, the reality is that the studies are showing it's refined sugar, that is probably one of the most toxic things that we are putting into our bodies today. But this is a real minefield because, you know, if you kind of go according to government guidelines, having five bits of fruits and vegetables a day means you're healthy. So I could eat five bananas and I'd tick my box or I'd drink my eight glasses of water. And I think, you know, those guidelines for a lot of people are accepted as the absolute truth. And sadly, a lot of people aren't taking responsibility for their experience. They're not using the most powerful biofeedback device known to man to, to base their experience on, which is their own bodies. And I think this is where, for me, when I hear that someone's coming up with a new plan, at first, sometimes it's alarm bells ringing because everyone's saying, follow this and everything's be great. Everyone is unique and individual. Every person, you know, what works for me might not work for you and it could kill the third person so you know tell us about sort of how you've approached this to to factor the fact that everyone is different everyone has different needs drivers motivators you know the whole thing about water for the eight glasses a day i think if you go to the world health organization website there's a formula based on ambient temperature body weight where you live age male female whether you're pregnant not pregnant and 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 that formula will be able to tell you how much water you should consume so eight glasses of water for one person could be great another person could be downright dangerous How have you factored for that in your approach?
1: Yeah, great point, Neil. Uh, And one of the hardest things I found about writing this book is if you come and see me in the surgery, I will personalize my approach to you, to your life, to your beliefs around health, uh, and, and, and design something that will work for you. And trying to give a book out there that I want to help every single member of the population, I thought, well, how do you manage that? And you're absolutely right. So I, I'm very transparent and open with how I've done that. So I one of my suggestions in the food pillar, and just to be clear, that's 25% of the book, it, 25% is, is on each pillar. Mm-hmm. So I don't just say that I give them equal importance. I actually show it by actually structuring the book in that very clear way and saying, I really do prioritize them equally. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the suggestions I make is to drink more water. Mm-hmm. Right? And then I very openly and transparently say, look, there are these guidelines to say drink eight glasses of water, but I've got to be honest, there's no compelling science that tells me that that's the right amount, but there's also no science telling me that that's not the right amount. So what I'm going to tell the readers is what the true definition of evidence-based medicine is, which is three things. Evidence-based medicine is a combination of research evidence, Mm -hmm. patient preference, and clinical expertise. Recently, we think it's all about the research trial, but if that was the case, you don't need a doctor, you don't need a human being to help someone. You can just look at the evidence and have a protocol and get a robot to apply it and you'll fix everyone. But unfortunately, no research trial tells me how to manage the patient in front of me. I have found in 16 and a half years that many patients do not drink enough water, Mm -hmm. sometimes a lack of concentration, headaches, constipation, stomachache. I have seen so many of these problems go away when people drink more water. Mm-hmm. So what I've said in the book, I think for most of us, drinking eight glasses of water is probably a good place to start. You may need more if you live in a hot climate, so if you exercise more. Um, if your, your work environment is dry, you may need a bit less. But as a rough barometer, try it. See how you go. Mm-hmm. And I, and I explain some strategies on how people can do that. Because you're right, there is no public health guidelines that tells me what exactly is the amount of fluid I should be drinking. And what I like about the drink more water suggestion, is if we drink more water, we tend to drink less of the other sugary stuff. So that's a kind of um, a default side effect. And also, people who drink more water tend to get up regularly because they need to go and pee, mm-hmm. right? So they, they're getting active. So I try and take, and I really think that's what's resonating about this book with people. I've taken a common sense approach where there is no science or there is limited science. I say there's limited science here, but this is what I found in 16 and a half years. I've also tackle, you mentioned fat, right? And you mentioned refined sugars. Well, I, I go into food in, a, in big detail and I explain why different diets and different populations around the world seem to do well, right? Mm-hmm. I explain, I go through the blue zones. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure you know about the blue yeah. zones. These areas around the world, these little pockets where people live to a ripe old age mm-hmm. in very good health. Mm-hmm. And, of course, scientists have, have looked, what's the perfect diet? You know, what is it? What's the secret? And the reality is, and I spoke to Michelle Poulain, who is the Belgian researcher who came up, he coined the term blue zones. I was lecturing with him in Guernsey in June. And he said, you know, some of them eat a lot of meat, right? Some of them are vegetarian. The point is they all have different diets, but what are they? They're all minimally processed. They're all local. They're all seasonal, right? And the other consistency between all the blue zones, and that's where it really fits in with my book and my philosophy, they're also, well slept they also have low levels of stress their everyday lifestyle is active right so it's a combination of things it's not the blue zone diet if you ask me it's the blue zone lifestyle and i tie up my theory as to why a low you know i don't like using the word low carbon. the reason i don't like using it is because i think we've demonized fat unfairly as you as you so rightly say but I think we're also running the risk of demonizing carbs. There are good fats, there are bad fats, there are good carbs, well, I shouldn't even say good and bad, there are helpful carbs and there are unhelpful carbs. And, and, and I tie in, in this book, I say, well, what, what, what are you gonna do as a doctor, right? I have used a diet that people would call a low carb diet with some of my patients with type two diabetes, with great results, but I also know many doctors who have got their patients off their diabetes medications using a low-fat diet mm-hmm. right so i can either try and choose which camp i belong to or take a more sensible approach to go well different things work for different people
0: i'm absolutely right? with you and i i'm not in either the fat or the carb camp but the camp i'm definitely in mm-hmm. is the no refined sugar because the blue zones that's the one thing i've seen the research on that none of them consume refined sugar.
1: absolutely what's interesting about the refined sugars is this conference i mentioned in guernsey mm-hmm. right so I was hosting it and speaking at it, and I was really fortunate. The day before the conference, the organisers had arranged for myself and Michel Poulin, one of the guys, along with Dan Buettner, behind the Blue Zone Research, and we went round in a taxi to see some of Guernsey's centenarians. Mm-hmm. Right, so I remember we got out the cab, and we knocked on the door of this 102-year-old chap. I can't remember his name now, actually. And now, as a GP, I'm used to doing home visits, mm-hmm. but I go to see generally people who are quite sick and unwell, you know, very rarely did they come and open the door, right? Mm. I went and knocked on the door, and this 102-year-old gentleman comes around, he opens the door for us, invites us in, you know, makes us a drink, we sit down having a chat with him, it, it was just phenomenal. And I, I spoke to him about his life and I said, you know, you've got 102, you're still very active. Um, quite telling was the fact that he never saw a doctor till he was 97, and he said when he, wow. once he saw a doctor his health started going downhill, which is quite <laughs> interesting. And there are many factors that could play into that, yeah. just to be clear. Um, but he told me about how he always grew his own food in his allotment, he would always walk down to the allotment, he was physically active every day. Not because he went to a gym, because his lifestyle was active. Yeah. Um, You know, he slept well, he didn't really know what stress was. He said, he said, yeah, yeah, of course, I love my life. You know, he he had family around him, truly remarkable. And then he's, I can't remember the name of it. He said, you know, I have the, and then one of my favorite things is this sweet treat. And it sounded a bit like um, a a croissant and some sweet bread mixed together. He said, it's like a Guernsey, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, delicacy. And I said, oh, okay, great. You know, how often are you having that? You having it, what, every week, every day? He's like oh, no, not at all. You know, at Christmas and at Easter, that's it, you know. Mm. And I thought, he's got it right there. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not depriving himself of these sugary delights, but what he's doing is it's not the everyday norm. It's an occasional Absolutely. treat, Absolutely. right? And I think, wow, how quickly have we lost all that when now parents, you could be careful how you, how you say this because people don't like this, but the reality is a lot of parents are coming to the school gate with sugary treats every single day for their Absolutely. kids right now look all parents are trying to do the best for their kids right but I think something's gone wrong in society where that has now become the norm and, and it's not about demonising parents because I, I do believe that everyone's trying to do the best for their kids with the knowledge they have available with the knowledge they've got available and that's why we need to take a more rounded a 360 degree approach to health and here's the other thing you know what And this is why I do think in the, there's no question that in the Western world, a lot of people are having huge success on what would be called a low carb diet. Mm -hmm. And and I speculate in the book, could it be that in our underslept Western world, our overly stressed Western world, our sedentary Western world, Mm -hmm. our highly processed, junk food ridden Western world, could it be in this environment that this sort of diet low and refined and processed carbs has a particular unique role. Mm. You know, maybe it's, and this is where it's hard when you look at research papers around the world, and we're looking at diet as one factor. Well, the way I see it, the way I've sort of articulated it around health, diet is a critical factor, but it's one of four,
0: Yeah.
1: right, for it's me. And actually, you know, Neil, if we were here five years ago doing this podcast, I would have told you, I think that food is the most important thing. Mm if you push me today I'd say it's stress and that's the, the the
0: battle I've been fighting for the last 14 years is to get people to take this seriously and I think we're finally getting to the point where we understand how serious it is we've got to a stage a one, where suicide is the main cause of death in a man under the age of 45 in Western Europe it's shocking it's shocking that it's killing young men every single day and we don't
1: talk about it we don't have a dialogue can, can I tell you about a case right and I, I I do I do I do go into this in the book, um, a sixteen year old boy came in to see me in general practice, and you know had four or five people waiting outside. And he came in with his mum, uh, and, and there was a letter there. I opened the letter and basically this chap had tried to uh, self harm at the weekend. He ended up in A and E, and had a letter from a telling me what happened, that he'd been assessed, he was safe to go home, but could I consider starting antidepressants? And I read the letter and I looked at him and I looked at his mum and I couldn't quite factor it, I couldn't figure out what was going on. I thought this seems like a pretty well-balanced family, you know, why is a six-year-old boy ending up in AE? It didn't feel right to me to start antidepressants. Hmm. So I said to them, I said look, Guys, I spent about 20 minutes talking. I said, guys, look, I'd love to find out a little bit more. Can can you come in tomorrow at the end of my morning surgery where I get a little bit longer? I'd love to try and tease out a bit more about what's going on. And we had this chat, and I thought, you know what? The way he's using social media worries me a little bit. Mm. And so I said to him, look, hey, would you consider reducing your social media use by about an hour a day? And he goes, what, do you think that will help? I said, well, look, I think it might do. Can we give it a week's trial? Mm. So he said, all right. So... Every night for a week, one hour before bed, he switched it off, his phone. right? didn't go on the internet. Came back a week later, and I said, how are you feeling? He goes, well, you know, I still don't feel great, but I'm definitely feeling better. I'm sleeping more. I've got more energy. I'm not quite as up and down as I am in the day. I said, all right, well, should we, should we push it a bit further? Because you, you, you seem to be seeing how, how much it, it can affect you so quickly. He goes, all right. Anyway, over the course of the next four to six weeks, we moved it. So the first two hours in the morning he didn't go on social media, and the last two hours of the day he didn't go on social media, you start to feel a considerable improvement. Hey, he's not cured, he's still got an issue, right? Mm. Things are a lot better. And then I thought, well, okay, what's he eating? Well, he's eating processed junk food a lot. And what that means is that his blood sugar's going up, his blood sugar's crashing two hours later. When your blood sugar crashes, on an evolutionary level, that is a shock and that is a stress to the body, mm-hmm. right? That's an alarm sign. So we raise levels of adrenaline and cortisol to compensate. And that has a knock-on effect on our mood hormones. Mm. So I thought, okay, well, look, so he's doing pretty well with his smartphone. So I helped him change his diet so we would cut out the processed sugary junk. And instead, he'd put in lots of healthy natural fats like avocados, olives, nuts, to help keep his blood sugar and his mood stable, mm-hmm. and I would see him less and less, more and more sporadically. And six months, and he continued, continued improvement. And six months, about six months later, I get a letter from his mother, saying to me, "Dr. Ashley, thank you. You've changed his life. He's like a different boy. He's happy at school. He's interacting with his teachers. He's interacting with his friends. It, it's truly incredible. Thank you." And I tell you, that's a boy who could have been diagnosed with a mental health problem, who could have been medicated at the age of 16 and potentially stayed on that and gone down a very different trajectory. Now, Neil, I'm not saying this works in every case, right? I'm not saying there's no place for medication. I'm simply saying, you know, the fact that one in four of us are gonna have a mental health problem at some point in our lives, that ain't better diagnosis. There is something going on. And how many people like that young lad are being medicated and are not being told how lifestyle can impact their mental health. This ain't just me saying it, Neil. 2015, The Lancet, the top medical journal, one of the top medical journals, was an editorial piece saying nutrition should be a first-line intervention for mental health problems in the same way that it is for something like type 2 diabetes or cardiology. But it's not happening. No, and I absolutely,
0: I commend you for taking your stance on this. Um, This is something I have a personal passion on, which I'll share with you in a minute. Um, but the, the reality is, the studies, the evidence has shown unequivocally that SSRIs, antidepressants, are about, on average, 20 to 25% successful in treating depression. This studies I've seen, that are using you know alternative uh, substances from the plant kingdom like psilocybin. There was a study done in Finland that showed it's about eighty three percent successful. Diet, lifestyle,
1: nutrition, meditation are all significantly. Well, Neil, I, I I'd expand it out. I, I, look, there, there are some question marks over SSRIs. There's no question about that, but as a doctor, right, one of the basic tenets of my profession is primum non nocere. First, do no harm. Antidepressants, SSRIs, have documented in the literature, in our BNF, our British National Formulary, in the rare side effects, it says increased risk of suicide. Absolutely. Right. So let's just take a step back for a minute and go, okay, we're saying it's a rare side effect, but it's a documented side effect nonetheless. So I would argue, should we not use harmless interventions first that we know may work before we move to those? right that that's my point my point is look we are literally 12 months ago right 12 months ago in february 2017 there was a, a small randomized controlled trial published on a modified mediterranean diet and its impact on depression and this is for severe depression and it showed a statistically significant uh, improvement in symptoms i think it was after about 6 weeks right yes it, it only had 65 people in the study but what's the downside of changing someone's diet zero yeah, <laughs> worst case true. scenario Absolutely. it ain't helped right and the reason why i feel passionately that we as doctors need to know more about this because the reality is we're not we're not trained in this model of care we're trained to diagnose and treat
0: well, as a doctor what you get 10 to 20 hours worth of nutritional education yeah. as part of your medical well Neil, that's programs. why that's
1: why with colleagues i've co-created Uh, the very first prescribing lifestyle medicine course in this country the royal college of gps have accredited it with seven cpd points our first one ran a couple of weeks ago on january the 20th in london you know you know over 200 doctors there we're trying to teach them and i hope to repeat it throughout the year so that you know doctors many doctors want to know this right Mm. but we're not taught it and and we need to start prioritising it in our consultation. Of course, we can refer out to other healthcare professionals, right? But we still need to know. We know for type two diabetes and obesity, lifestyle plays a role, but often we don't know. Or we don't know what to do with that information for mental health problems, for gut problems, mm-hmm. for migraines, right? And for many many of your listeners might have seen the BBC One series Doctor in the House, where I helped a lady reverse type two diabetes help get rid of 30 years of back pain in six weeks, get rid of menopausal symptoms almost entirely without using hormones, right? Headaches, fibromyalgia, the the, the list goes on, you know, multiple patients with weight loss, more energy, insomnia, Mm. all of them by using the principles that I outline in my book,
0: right? And and I tell you, most
1: (laughs) of these principles in this book, right, are free,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: right? The only question mark you might have is in the food pillar, you know, a lot of people say it's quite hard to eat well uh, on a budget, right? And I think, you know, I get for some families, I definitely think that is the case, but I don't think for a lot, for many people, it's not quite, you know, when you actually really make that comparison, it's not too bad. But every suggestion in the relax pillar, every suggestion in the move pillar, every suggestion in the sleep pillar, and even the majority of the food ones, which are, you know, Eating all your food within a 12-hour eating window, free. Denormalizing sugar, free. Mm-hmm. Drink more water, free. Right? So this is accessible for everyone. And I'm a doctor. I want to help every single person. And that's why I put so much time and effort into making something that is accessible and that's not exclusive for people.
0: And, and that's, it's fascinating. And I wish I'd come across you 16 years ago, uh, if I may, I'd like to share my kind of background, which led me to set up the Stress Management Society. I started my first business when I was 24. It was an IT recruitment company, turned it into a multi-million pound business, won the Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award, got invited to number 10 Downing Street, South Brooks with Tony Blair. It had this skyrocketed success, set up offices in different parts of the world. Four years later, went bust and lost everything. Um, I was 27, 28 at the time. So I went from this kind of, you know, being on top of the world to crashing and burning. And when I say losing everything, I'm talking money gone, car repossessed. The person I was in a relationship was cheating on me. Most of the people I thought my closest friends turned their back on me. It's like everything I thought was of value in my life disappeared within a short period of time. And I crashed and burned. I did have a bit of a breakdown. I went to my GP because I was non-functional and he suggested antidepressants. Uh, I went on them. Uh, Three months later, I tried to end my own life one of the reasons i'm so passionate about campaigning around male suicide i know what it's like i've been there which is why i set up the stress management Society. so you know for, for me this is a personal crusade it's not just what i do for a living but i also understand with every incredible individual i've ever had the fortune to be able to interview there's always a story behind that and i'd like to understand for you dr Chalogy, what what was your life-changing moment what is it that kind of
1: changed the course of your life that led you to do what you do today yeah, Neil, I mean, thank you for sharing your story. Um, incredible to hear that, it really is. Um, and you know, I can't imagine what you've been through to, to get to where you are now. Um, for me, there's probably two key moments. Um, I've always had a slight disconnect in medicine between what I've been told to do with my patients and what I intuitively felt was the right thing to do. A little bit like that, that case of the 16-year-old who, mm. um, who tried to harm himself. I just thought well, I don't. I just don't feel medication's the right thing here, and you know, just over it was just over seven years ago now, I was on holiday in France with my wife, um, with our little boy, and he he stopped moving suddenly, and you know, I remember very clearly, um, my wife called out to me. Uh, I was in the kitchen. She was sitting on a sofa with him, and I just, I just. You know, I kind of froze. I thought that he might have been choking on phlegm because he'd had, he'd been a bit phlegmy and mucusy that day. So I turned him over. I tried to clear his airway. I couldn't, and I just froze. You know, I wasn't no, I wasn't a calm doctor. I was a worried, scared dad. Mm-hmm. And my wife just shouted, "Look, we've got to get to hospital!" And you know, um, we you know, I nearly killed us all driving to hospital. It just snowed heavily. I nearly turned the car over. We got there. I was sticking tubes in him. You know. Uh, He was blue-lighted down the mountain to a a valley hospital, two lumbar punctures that night. You know, we thought we might lose him. And and what transpired, actually, is that he had uh, a dangerously low level of calcium in his body that was secondary to a vitamin D deficiency. So, fully preventable. Um, But, you know, I've got an immunology degree. I trained as a specialist first. Then I moved to general practice with all my wide variety of training. I wasn't able to prevent a simple vitamin deficiency in my own son. And there's a lot of guilt associated with that. And you know, bit by bit I'm I'm letting go of that guilt. So I don't think it's helping me in my own life or helping me be, a, be the best dad I can be to him. But you know, I, I was driven after that moment. I started I started reading about it about vitamin D and calcium. And you know, with the internet the way it is. I started going into research. I was three hours a day, I was reading about all kinds of research and science, That I thought, how do I not know about this? How can I help my patients if I don't know this? So I first, you know, modern medicine saved his life in that instant, right? But nobody taught me what to do about the implications of the fact that, you know, vitamin D, a critical vitamin for his immune system, may well have been low his entire life while his immune system was developing. Maybe that was behind his eczema. Maybe that was behind other issues that he was having. And so, literally, my goal was I'm going to get him back to full health as if this had never, ever happened. Mm. And by doing that, and he's a thriving, happy, healthy young boy, I learned so much. I applied those same principles with myself, with my family. We started feeling better, noticeably better. I started applying these principles with my patients. Then I started to get to the root cause of their problems, getting them better, often without using medication. And I thought, wow, this is, this is just phenomenal. Um, and it's become an obsession for me. You know, it doesn't really feel like work. I, I feel that the knowledge I've got and the knowledge I've gleaned on this journey, I want to share with people because it's not about telling people what to do. If someone comes in to see me and they want the drug option, I'm okay with that as long as we've given them all the options and they're informed to make that decision. Um, the, the other big factor for me is that my dad. Um, who was a medical doctor? He was a consultant at Manchester Royal Infirmary. Um, you know, I was a carer for my dad for a long period of time. My dad suddenly got ill in his late fifties. Never been ill before, but actually, I look back now and stress is what killed my dad. I know it. You know, I, I, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but you know, in his late fifties, he suddenly got unwell. He got a condition called lupus, and then his kidneys failed. So he was on dialysis for fifteen years. So you know, three times a week in an ambulance of the hospital, sat there still for seven hours with a tube in your arm filtering your body. Yeah, lucky we have such great treatment to keep him alive. I don't know how I would have coped with that, but I moved back to where I grew up. Mm. You know, I left Edinburgh where I was studying. Um, My whole adult life, until five years ago pretty much, when when my dad died, um, all revolved around being around for my family, helping look after my dad, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. My phone was never off. I was always expecting a call, has something happened, has dad fallen, right? And you know, it's one of those experiences that have actually changed me as a human being. I've been on the other side as a patient, as a carer. And I think these two factors for me with my son and my dad have really changed me and influenced who I am today and why I do what I do. With the work you're focusing on, how is that being received by both patients and your contemporaries and peers? You know, what's the reaction been from the four pillars? Largely very positive. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, I fully appreciate it could be slightly self-selecting. You know, I'm potentially seeing the comments that are, you know, that are that are complimentary and and show me you know, what people are resonating with and maybe the people who dislike my approach are not contacting me. So, you know, I'll, I'll openly acknowledge that, that it might be just what I'm seeing. Feedback's just been incredible. I've, I've had so many doctors. Mm-hmm. E- even on Amazon, you go, there's doctors on there writing reviews saying, we're going to be giving this to our patients. We're going to be buying some from our practice. You know, it's just incredible. There's surgeons on there. There's pediatricians on there. There are so many doctors who are recognising That actually lifestyle is a big driver, and they're realising this might be a resource that they can use with their patients, and that makes me incredibly excited. You know, I'd love doctors to start giving this to their patients as a way of, you know, empowering them and take some of this pressure off the NHS. Look, I mentioned the course I've 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 got managed to get accredited by the Royal College of GPs. You know, in two thousand and eighteen, we've got. A Royal College of GP accredited course that I'm teaching with two of my colleagues called Prescribing Lifestyle Medicine. That wasn't happening five years ago, right? I've got to take that as progress. I think the reason this message is getting out there, I think the time is right now for this message. I think my release is put five years ago, maybe it was too early, maybe the time wasn't there. And the reason I think the time is right now, I, I very sadly, often the moral imperative to understand this stuff and make a change is not good enough for society, but the financial imperative sure as hell is. Absolutely. And we are crumbling now. The NHS is not coping. We have to start doing things differently or we are going under. And that's why I think using lifestyle as a therapeutic intervention for all of us you know, is gaining traction more and more.
0: Absolutely, and a couple of things I think we really do need to consider. The Borman review conducted by Dr. Stephen Borman several years ago, suggested very clearly that one of the biggest things impacting patient care within the NHS is, is kind of the stress and the, the poor well-being of the personnel within the NHS. Doctors and nurses working long hours, under extreme pressure, that are not able to make the best decisions, are not able to collaborate to build a service that is providing good healthcare. It's a very reactive system. Now, the, the, the challenge is that f- from my perspective, from the work that I do and having spent a lot of time working with the NHS, the people in the NHS need this four-pillar plan as much as the people
1: that are coming to the NHS for treatment. Absolutely. Neil, it's a great point. And I've, I'm, I'm speaking at a Royal College of GP wellbeing event for doctors because we're recognising that wellbeing for our profession is a big problem. People are stressed. They are burnt out. And, and you know, the, 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 these, this four-pillar approach that I, I, I detail, you know, it's applicable for everyone. I'd love it if all of us, right? Use the four pillar framework as a tool to self-assess our own life. You know, which pillar do I need the most working at the moment, right? Because focus your attentions there. You'll get more benefit there than just going to your favorite over and over again, you know, jumping from diet to diet. It may be diet. But I tell you, for me, out of food, movement, sleep, and relaxation, no question at the moment, my relaxation pillar, is. Str- I'm struggling a bit, right? I'm a little bit overstressed at the moment. I'm not getting enough downtime. You know, it's, it's an incredibly exciting time that this book is doing so well, so I'm having to do a lot of interviews and prom- promotion around it to get this message out there. But it's having a cost on me. So i made a little commitment to myself every morning that I'm going to be doing 10 minutes meditation, and I'm currently using the Car Map. I, I, I jump from app to app depending on what I like but currently I'm using Calm and I like it mm. um, and that's my little commitment to myself to say look you know what that's, that's the pillar I need to focus on so I'd love everybody to, to use it as a tool to go hey what do I need to do maybe it's sleep maybe I'll go to bed an hour earlier for the next seven days and see how we feel and, and that's the goal with everything I do it's not to tell people what to do it's to empower them so they can feel differently quickly, mm. and then they can make the decision, right? Because if they feel better, and let's say you go to bed an hour earlier a night for seven we- uh, for seven days, right? And let's say you switch off all technology 90 minutes before bed, and one of the suggestions I make is called a No Tech 90, and how that can help our sleep, you know, just before bed. And after seven days, if you're sleeping better, right? and I've got some comments on my Instagram recently where people said I've just 2 days of doing this and I'm it's transformed my sleep and I just feel that's just amazing. Mm. People are then empowered. They can choose to continue that if they want to. If they don't want to do that, that's up to them as well. But they always know and they may come back to it at later times in the year. And actually in the conclusion I actually detail, look, life is not perfect. Life will throw you curveballs. Work pressure, family illness, right? Things will happen that will actually throw you off path. And I want people to pick this book up off the shelf later when their sleep has gone off track to go, hey, you what? I'm just gonna go to that sleep pillar, go through some simple things that I can do to get my sleep back on track, right? Because that's the reality. We don't hit perfection and then we stay there, right? You know, it's always ebb and flow. Um, so, so it is difficult, but you, you, you're absolutely right. Healthcare professionals need this as much as members of the public. So from your perspective, sir, how does it feel being a
0: trailblazer? Do you have concerns about speaking out? Um, you know, I'm sure you're not popular with the pharmaceutical industry. I know I'm not for sure. Do you speak freely or do you have to constantly self-edit? You know, do, are you concerned that, that you know, what you're saying sometimes goes against the grain or commonly accepted
1: advice and guidance? Yeah, it's a good question. I've been in, the, in the, the media spotlight in, in some way for three to four years now. And the same question, and I see this with a lot of doctors who are starting out in the media. When mm-hmm. we start, we're very, very cautious mm-hmm. about what we say. Um, you know, we're trained as doctors, we're trained to think a certain way. You know, we're, we're nervous about how what we say will be taken by our peers. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I haven't really found that, if I'm honest. I, I'm, I'm not out there to start fights with people, mm-hmm. right? I don't generally get involved with big fights on social media, like, mm-hmm. you know, lots of people who I respect do do that, and that's yeah. fine. That ain't my gig, right? I want to showcase what I think is a better way for many people, right? I'm not saying I've got all the answers. I absolutely welcome if someone disagrees with me and wants to have a reasonable debate. I don't respond well if people are quite rude to me and expect me to to engage with them when they're quite derogatory towards me. I just, you know, although I found it very hard at first, I just filter that out because I'm not interested. But if someone disagrees with me and and makes a nice comment on social media saying, hey, look, I. I like what you stand for, but I don't agree with that. What do you think? I will engage in a very constructive way. Um, I tell you, the the last series of Doctor in the House, right, there was a lady with severe headaches, severe headaches. They they were called suicide headaches, right? Um, And and if you saw it, the footage was frankly excruciating to watch. Um, Now, she had been under many different neurologists over a 15-year period, five different ones, I think. And they had struggled to get the right diagnosis. At various times, she'd been given different diagnoses ranging from atypical migraine to something called paroxysmal hemicrania. And then by large agreement, they had agreed that she actually had something called cluster headaches, right, and these are known as suicide headaches because some sufferers would much rather, or they say they'd much rather end it than actually have to put up with the severity of those headaches. Now, these are, called, these are regarded as incurable conditions. Now, she had tried all the conventional treatments, high-flow oxygen, all the drugs that we have, and they weren't working. So she was coming to me for help. I was, I was like, i am going to help this lady? You know, she's under some of the best people in the country on this. So I said, okay, let's take a different approach. Let's try and work out what are the factors in her lifestyle that may be playing a role, right? And it was basically, you know, my four pillar approach which is how I view all of my patients go how can I influence all these four things because these are the four most controllable aspects of health that have the most impact on the way that we feel there was a couple of other things I did with her as well and by the end of the six weeks from having 90 well up to 90 per week so about 70 to 90 a week she was having between two and five a week right and she said I could live like this forever this just feels amazing for me I didn't kill them I didn't get rid of them, but significantly better. Now, what happens then on social media? Some people loved it, there was a lot of animosity. And particularly from a GP, who um, I think she works at the National Migraine Center. Right, so she tweeted me, Uh, I can't remember the question she asked me, and I thought, okay, who is this? And I looked, and I saw, she's not been out, she's been a little bit derogatory about me the last few days. Um, I thought, okay, she's a fellow colleague, so I engaged with her on Twitter and I said, hey there, um, I appreciate, I respect your opinion as a fellow professional. I, uh, all I ask is you respect my opinion to do what I feel was right for that patient. And she goes, yeah, 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 you know, of course. And I said, I trust you're happy with the results I achieved with her. Yeah, yeah, I am. And I said, well, what do you do when your patients don't respond to uh, all the conventional evidence-based treatments, the medications? You go, know, so, oh, well, for migraines, I would try Um, lifestyle inspections, but not for cluster headaches. I said, well, okay, fine. I respect your opinion, but nothing I did was dangerous. And it clearly has had a powerful impact. And ultimately, that conversation turned around. And at the end, she said, we'd be delighted to have you as a special guest at our centre to come down. So starting off with a quite derogatory tweet about me, Mm. which actually I find a little bit out of order, really. you know, There's a way for a fellow doctor to engage on social media with me, which is with respect. You know, you can disagree with me, but you don't need to bad mouth me, you know? And I have a real issue with that, but just by engaging with her in a constructive way, I then get invited to go down to her center. And I find that remarkable. it teaches you a lot about human psychology. And
0: that's, that's a really fascinating point you raised there. You at least got the respect as a professional. Uh, I'm not a doctor. I do have a therapeutic background. I don't talk about that, and you're not gonna find that online. So I get trolled every single day, even though I can back up everything I'm saying with literally 14 years worth of working you know, of literally thousands of people around the world. And we seem to find ourselves in a world where it's number one, who's got the most money to fund the research and make sure that research gets publicized well enough that it becomes accepted, as opposed to who has been able to back that up with actual results. And that for me is a concern, and I think that really brings me on to my next question. What are the barriers? What are the barriers that you're facing? What are the kind of restrictions you're facing? And i am going to give you one that I've come up with um, that, that, that you may potentially face. Uh, I went out for dinner with a, a dear family friend of ours over Christmas, and we got talking, and she said, oh, I went on this course. She's a GP. She went on this course, and she was talking about this course, and, and she said, yeah, and it's a doctor, and I didn't know at the time, but it was only afterwards I put the dots together, she was on your course. Um, I'm nervous about what you're gonna say now. now. But one of the things that my friend was concerned about is her ability to be able to practice lifestyle medicine because of the barriers that exist. And I just want to get your perspective on that. What barriers are there for you and anybody else that wants to start promoting lifestyle and functional
1: medicine? Yeah, I think it's a great question. It's something I get asked a lot, particularly by doctors. Um, and one of the barriers is clearly time. Okay? You know, the, the standard GP consultation in this country at the moment is technically 10 minutes, and often it ends up being maybe about seven minutes, really, the time you actually have with that patient. That's clearly not a lot of time, although I do strongly argue that you can do something within that time, mm-hmm. okay? I don't see this as separate to good quality modern medicine. I In my book, I call this progressive medicine. Why do I call it that? Because progressive medicine, to me, is about acknowledging what we have been so good at, what we have learned in the 20th century, and, and how good we are at acute disease, heart attacks, pneumonias, car accidents. You know what? These things we are fantastic at, at treating with modern medicine. But also acknowledging that that approach, that one pill for every ill approach, doesn't actually work so well for chronic disease like type 2 diabetes, mm. like, you know, headaches, like. Gut symptoms, like all kinds of problems, fatigue, fibromyalgia, all these sort of problems, that it's not quite as easy to fit them into that model. So this is just a progression of our understanding as a science changes. I told you since the human genome has been sequenced, we now know Mm. that actually ten percent, roughly, of our health outcome is genetic; ninety percent is environmental and lifestyle. So we need to know more about how we can influence those things. I went to medical school in Edinburgh between 1995 and 2001. The field of epigenetics wasn't around there in the same way that it is now, right? So it's just about evolving our understanding. So I call this good quality medicine. I don't separate this as being, you know, it's either medicine or it's nutrition. I'm saying the health landscape in this country and around the world has changed. What we were seeing 30, 40 years ago responded well to a magic bullet intervention, right? Things have changed now. And what we're seeing now doesn't. So we need a different approach. And I go back to the same point, which is nothing that I recommend when it comes to lifestyle is harmful, right? Worst case scenario, and that lady with headaches that I'm talking about, I said no. to her, I said, look, I don't know if I can help you, but what I can tell you, give me a go for four to six weeks, right? Worst case scenario, things are still the same as they are now. Are you okay with that? She said, yeah, I'm in. Right? What's wrong with that? Absolutely. Nothing.
0: A key challenge for me is that we have to change the psychology. When we talk about medicine, people think of something that comes out of a box and it's in a blister pack. Now, I think there is a place for pharmaceuticals, but it should not be the first option. I think there's much we can do before we get to the point of popping pills out of a blister pack. All right, so, you know, just as we start to wrap up, your top tips, you know, for someone that is listening today that wants to start their journey, you know, whilst they're still waiting for Amazon to deliver their four-pillar plan, (laughs) what are the things that they can start doing immediately?
1: I think, Neil, for my tips, the best thing to do is to take one tip from each pillar. Okay, i start the book with the relaxation, the whole stress piece. 15 minutes of me time every day. Something that you love, something you want to do for you alone and without your phone. Could be a 15-minute walk, could be be sitting in a cafe for 15 minutes, but please don't look at your phone at the same time. Food, right? Instead of changing what you eat, change when you eat. Think about eating all of your food within a 12-hour eating window. Okay? We've got really compelling research suggesting that that can help you lose weight, improve your blood sugar uh, mm-hmm. balance and improve immune system function and many other things. Quite a simple tip, very achievable for most people. Mm-hmm. Movement, right? Strength training, don't neglect it. Try and do my five-minute kitchen workout mm-hmm. twice a week. That's all I'm asking for 10 minutes of people in a week, right? Everyone can do that. It's there in the book. It's there on my website. It's called a five-minute kitchen workout and it's life-changing for people. And I think in the last pillar, sleep, I'd probably say try and adopt a no-tech 90. For a week, try and switch off all modern technology, phones, tablets, laptops, for 90 minutes before bed and see how you feel a week later. I think that, that covers it for me.
0: Fantastic. I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule for, to, to talk to us today. Um, where can
1: people find out more? Um, but my website is drchastity.com. There's loads of videos, free videos and resources to go alongside the book to help people. Loads of stuff on movement, loads of recipes, all kinds of things are all there on my website. Mm-hmm. I'm very active on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I've got a new podcast out, which I'd love to get you on, Neil, at some point called Feel Better, Live More, which you can find on iTunes.
0: Fantastic. I will 100% accept right here, right now. And I'd also love to do a Facebook Live with you as well. I'm sure that there's much more we could get into given the
1: time. We'd love to, Thanks for having me on.
0: Fantastic. As ever, if you've enjoyed today's conversation, like, comment, share. Let us know what you thought. Share your stories. Any questions, comments, feedback are most welcome. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's conversation as much as I've enjoyed being part of it. See you next time.